Hello again, and welcome to a hashtag Pooligans podcast like none we've ever had before. My name is Daniel. You can follow me on Twitter at D underscore twit, and you can find any and all episodes of this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Pod. Dear listeners, please strap yourself in because, trigger warning, the podcast you're about to listen to features not one, not two, no, three millennial guests. We're calling it the Pooligans Next Gen Podcast. I know you're in deep shock, but please allow me to briefly explain how it all came about. You longtime listeners out there know, of course, that this podcast began almost a year ago as an experimental tribute band, a subtweet, a fan magazine, if you will, of Julie Mason's POTUS Press Pool on Sirius XM Channel 124. Our initial guests were all fellow Mason superfans, and three of those earliest and most trusting guests were Bubbles the Vampire, Denise Tutt, and Unruly Julie. Of course, I owe a debt of gratitude to all my guests, appearing on the podcast and having questions fired at you takes a special kind of chutzpah, but a few months ago I approached Bubbles, Denise, and Unruly with a new show idea. Give me your firstborns. Okay, that wasn't, I didn't put it quite that way, I simply asked if their children, all millennials, might agree to come on the podcast and talk about politics and 2020 and avocado toast and, you know, the the questions we all have for millennials. I soon gained my first and rather humbling insight into my previous guest's millennial offspring. None of them had really listened to any of the podcasts. So, once my profound sadness abated, I realized I could use this to my advantage. None of them knew what they were in for. I could catch these millennials red-handed at, you know, at at millennialing. But, as you're about to hear, that's of course not at all what happened. Instead, we had a wonderful, fun conversation about a slew of topics, many of them not at all what you'd expect out of three members of a generation that supposedly wishy-washy, unreliable, and overly fond of social media grandstanding without proper follow-up. I'm going to play that bumper now and give you time to take a few more deep breaths, and then we will dive into the mysterious world of the Millennials. Okay, I'm just going to turn this on. You would have figured that I would have learned that by now to make sure that I start recording before the hilarity happens. <laughs> so mad at myself. Look, now everybody's all quiet because it's starting to record. <laughs> now the pressure's on. Sounds about right. Now it's, now it's serious. I'll do little intros for the three of you. Is that cool? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So we are here for our next-gen podcast. I need to introduce you to three outstanding young people. Our first guest is the daughter of our beloved Denise Tutt. She's an engineer who's married to an engineer, the owner of an adorable puppy that likes to be babysat on occasion, and she was recently able to locate Disneyland in Anaheim after an extensive search. Uh, <laughs> you you can and should follow her on Twitter at Chelsea underscore Tuttle. Chelsea, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. You all agreed to this. I don't know why, but you did, so I'm very grateful to all of you. Um. Our second guest is also millennial, the daughter of everyone's favorite North Carolinian, unruly Julie. She's worked in and around politics and currently works for an unnamed publication in New York City. And among many other things, she will tell us everything we need to know about the Bang Tang Boys, otherwise known as BTS. And you can follow her at Talbert Alex. Hi, Alex. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Is that the okay Twitter, Alex, or do you want the other one? Um, That's 
That's the politically correct Twitter. So we'll go with that one. We'll go with that's that. the best we can do some days, right? Right, because the other one's kind of private. So I didn't want to. I didn't want to go there. So we'll go with that one. It's not private. It's just crazy. That's. Oh, okay. So she, so she, she also has a crazy Twitter, but you'll have to find that on your own. Okay. Yes, not that hard. (laughs) Yeah, and last but very much not least, I'm extremely pleased to introduce you to our first Generation Z guest, the oldest son of our very own Bobbles the Vampire. Do not, however, let his age fool you. He describes himself as a musician, philosopher, and art historian, and has just recently returned from spending time in Europe, where he'll spend a bunch more time this summer. Something we'll obviously talk about shortly. You can follow him on Twitter at Teng Warren, and we'll call him Ian. Ian, welcome. Thanks for having me. I, I'm a little insulted by the Gen Z. I, I could debate that, but I'll let it go for now. No, no, we're going to debate it right now. Are you or are you not a Gen Z or a millennial, Ian? Well, so, you know, uh-huh. it's a pretty contentious topic. I, I've seen a lot of different articles talking about here's the cutoff date, here's the cutoff date, here's the cutoff date. And 1997, my, my birth year. Uh, is very contentious. It's right in the middle of most of these. But the reason I identify as millennial and not Gen Z is that the hallmark of Gen Z is grew up with the internet and smartphones. I did not have the internet growing up until I was about 13, and I didn't own a smartphone until I graduated high school. So I definitely find myself gen- associating, identifying more with the, the you know millennial aspect of cultural identity. Mm-hmm. So let the record show that this gentleman chose to be a millennial. He's a millennial by choice. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate your understanding. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll, we'll let that go. You're a millennial by choice. We have three millennials and zero Gen Zs, guys. I'm sorry, everybody who <laughs> for a Gen Z. We're done with that. Um, so let's, in that case now, since, since we have three millennials, tell me a little bit to start actually about how you guys grew up where did you grow up what do you think formed you or shaped you on your way toward the career path and the life that you're currently living oh geez okay um all right so i grew up in springfield massachusetts my mom still my mom and dad still live there um i don't really what was it how did i get to my career um I don't know. It felt like I had a pretty normal life, but I guess everyone's normal is different, right? But I don't know. Just kind of grew up, went to school, um, played a lot of sports after school. I was always doing like some sort of activity, if it's like sports or I tried dance for like a hot minute. Um, And I was really good at school and I don't know. I was pretty much good at all subjects. I'm not trying to like be a brag person, but um, when it came time to choose <laughs> what I wanted to focus on, um, as I got later on in high school and when I'm starting to think about college, I really wanted to pursue the science stuff. Um, and that's kind of what led me to engineering. I do kind of miss some of the English and writing and reading stuff. Luckily, now that I'm out of school, I can do that on my own time. And yeah, so after college, I went to Worcester Polytechnic Institute, spent about four years living in Worcester, going to school meeting new friends, trying new activities, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then from there, I got into a couple of different engineering jobs. And I'm still in Massachusetts now. And doing engineering. So as you can already tell, dear listeners, she sounds very responsible, is doing her job, and is not slacking. We'll actually get to all of those. <laughs> we'll get to all of those grading preconceived notions about your age group a little bit later. But okay, so... I was going to say, the pile of laundry staring at me right now might disagree with the slacker comment, but I'll let it go. <laughs> 
Okay, well, if it's laundry that everybody's worried about with the millennials, <laughs> then I think we're, we're doing pretty well. Alex, how about you? Tell us a little about how you grew up and what brought you to what you're doing now. Yeah, so I grew up in North Carolina, as you may know from the intro with my mom. And I grew up kind of on the computer. I think I would say my childhood was characterized by the computer and like Windows 95 computer. I was on the computer since I was like three years old. So ever since I could play the little snake games on the computer, the snake games on the Nokia phones, like I think that was me in a nutshell. And it kind of continued throughout my childhood. Like for me, I never really felt like I belonged too much in North Carolina. I felt like I was kind of didn't want to be with the status quo all the time. So I just sort of shielded myself with video games and staying on the computer all the time. I was always interested in coding and things like that. But then I go to high school and my favorite teacher is a Latin teacher, as it would be. And <laughs> I always, for some reason, had this interest in language. So I stuck with that. And then when I went to college, I went to UNC. I ended up going to UNC for Latin, Greek, and German because I was so enamored with the subject in high school. It's what I resonated with. So I did that in college and then quickly I realized like I'm not good enough for this like I'm not good enough to be an expert in Latin so I quickly switched gears and I was like you know what what's a good job tech I guess so I started working in the IT department and from there I just sort of started applying for IT jobs and now I'm in IT at my publication which really I don't have anything to do with the publication and all of us in our little group make fun of it. But besides, <laughs> besides that, <laughs> we're, we're all very liberal over there. <laughs> but besides that, uh, you know, I've just been here in my tech world. I still kind of am. I've gotten outside the house a little bit more after leaving college and making new friends and stuff. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, that's my life in a nutshell, I think. Do you think that New York played more to who you felt you were or wanted to be than North Carolina did? Uh, well, where I went to college, the UNC, it's a pretty like liberal area. It's really kind of a liberal mecca right now for North Carolina, I think. That and maybe Greensboro and somewhat Charlotte, but there's lots of I don't know, Republicans there, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I basically just wanted to go somewhere where I could experience a lot of different things. And that kind of played with my language a little bit, too, because you mentioned in my intro, I'm interested in K-pop, not necessarily BTS as a disclaimer, <laughs> but I can tell you all about them. But I'm interested in K-pop. And when I came here, immediately, the first thing I did was sign up for like Korean classes and Korean language meetups and did German meetups, too. But I, I basically just wanted to surround myself with a lot of different cultures because North Carolina doesn't really provide that as much. It's more in like really smaller pockets. So that's that's one of the reasons I was drawn to here. Now I want to know what K-pop you are listening to. <laughs> you thinking we're not going to be talking about that? We're going to give everybody <laughs> a K-pop education today. Well, I think I missed the email with the itinerary, so I'll I'll keep my eyes peeled. Yeah, no, we'll totally do that because we had a in our little in our little uh, pooligan storm a BTS what the fuck is this discussion began. <laughs> where people were like, I saw them in SNL and they suck. And then the next person was like, yeah, not for me. Seems weird. And so I, they really need help uh, under, <laughs> understanding K-pop. So that is something that we're going to provide today. Definitely looking forward to that. Alex, how is your German? Um, out of practice. 
Leider so. muss ich üben und eine Unterhaltung haben. Ja, also wir können schon, wenn du möchtest, aber ich weiß nicht, was die anderen zwei davon haben. Ah, uh, ja, das weiß ich nicht auch. Okay. <laughs> das ist nicht so gut, ich glaube. Okay, we're not going to put her on the spot with German. Uh, we're <laughs> going to leave that, we're going to leave that alone. Nächstes Mal. Nächstes Mal, genau. Yep, next time. Ian, please tell us about yourself, sir. Uh, well, I'm the youngest person here, as, as we've recently learned. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm still completing my undergrad degree, although I'd like to be a professor of art history in the future. So I, I'm God you know, bless you. getting close to practicing uh, <laughs> for, for my master's programs, doctoral programs. A lot of my friends are preparing to graduate. I'm preparing to graduate for the first time out of three. So, but I grew up here in Morgantown. I've been here, I don't know, 15 years probably now. And I think that this career path doesn't really come as a surprise to me, but it's definitely not something I saw either. Uh, you know, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners are aware, my my father has a, a PhD in French history, so I'm not too far off. I'm, you know, 50% of the degree there. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think it surprises me that I ended up here. But at the same time, I, I wasn't a kid thinking, oh, man, I can't wait to, to grow up and be a professor. But I found it really speaks <laughs> to me, so... So you would say that the professorship wasn't necessarily completely instilled by your father. It wasn't like, oh my God, dad is, I must as well. And that was your career trajectory from the beginning. No, absolutely not. You know, I remember him sitting my brother and I down on, on Sunday mornings. I, I should mention as well that my brother and I were homeschooled for a number of years, uh, sitting us down on Sunday mornings. And we sat in front of his Windows 98 computer and he had a PowerPoint on it and he would do you know, some history. We worked through basically the entirety of world history. And I remember sitting there one day thinking, why would anyone want to do this for a living? You know, of course, 14-year-old me, probably a little younger than that. So it's ironic to me now that it really fires my jets when I, I do a lot of tutoring for quite a few subjects. I have people come in and, I mean, I just get so excited when I see them walk out of there and they're like, oh, I totally get it now. So we're we're gonna need some tutoring too, Ian. I think, I, I, especially in art history. I had a conversation with my wife yesterday about art in general because there's we're currently in Arizona and there's some art here at the hotel that is, to use a nice euphemism, uninspiring. <laughs> and and I'm always fascinated by people's reaction to art when they go to a museum. The reaction seems to be either I don't really care about art. I think this is pretty. Or I could do this myself. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's it's very polarizing in that sense. You have this that strong sort of dichotomy. And so we're, we're going to do a little bit of, in that case, we're going to do some art history later. I'm really excited. And, and I would like to mention for our listeners, Ian on his own asked whether we could call, whether we could talk about Notre Dame. Yes. Very excited about that. And so we will do a Notre Dame segment. So you will learn about so many things that you didn't think you will be learning today, dear audience. But first, but first, we're going to try one of the things that I've done with your parents almost countless times, I think, at this point, called the what the fuck meter. Do you know anything about this? I, I'm familiar with it in concept. Theory only. In concept. All right. And you guys have never heard of it. So that's good. I, I will have a talk with your parents about what they share about this podcast. And um, <laughs> Give them a strong talking to. I know. I'm like, why do you not share this with your children? Is there a reason why you do not pass this on? Oh, it's because they don't want to know. Okay, well. <laughs> it's the latter. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. 
I can totally imagine, especially your mom saying, I did the podcast, and Jesse being like, yeah, mm-mm. No, <laughs> no. no, I told her to send me the link because I wanted to listen. But I only listened to that first episode, so the fr- Wow. Well, yeah, dude, you know what? One out of 30-odd episodes is not bad, I guess. Uh, the uh, <laughs> the what-the-fuck meter. The what-the-fuck meter started because a lot of older adults had their hair on fire about the election. So... The what the fuck meter started in order to sort of gauge where they were at that week, you know, emotions. So the original what the fuck meter started with a one, which would be, I had to sort of adjust it for for your age group. But uh, it would be, you just heard that your student loans have been completely forgiven. You have some grapes and you're enjoying YouTube. To a 10, which if somebody dipped you in honey and you're now rolling around in a hill of fire ants. Okay. <laughs> was this for, was I have grapes if it's what the fuck level one? Is that what you said? Yes. Yes. Nice. Grapes are part of, because grapes are nice. Right? <laughs> I mean, can't argue with that. Sure. All right. So should I have said avocados? Yeah. I didn't get <laughs> our avocado no. toast. Come on. Yes. Now, now I can relate. Thank you. I didn't want to insult you guys by saying avocado, <laughs> so I went with grape. But fine, if you're going to give me shit about it, it's avocado. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll proudly play into that stereotype. <laughs> yes, agreed. Okay, so I guess show of hands for avocados. Alex, did I hear you whisper that you do not like avocados? No, I didn't say that. I had guacamole for dinner. Fully. Wow. Okay, oh. so much for that stereotype not being yeah. accurate. Uh, Chelsea? <laughs> Yeah, here, let me raise my hand in the little room. Yep, love avocados. Okay, uh, Ian? Uh, I mean, of course. My bank account doesn't love them, but... <laughs> They're really not that bad. I'm curious how much y'all are purchasing them for now. Oh, it's because you're still a student. <laughs> I mean, $5 for, for a single piece of produce is pretty high for me right now. I've never seen them that high. Well, I, think yeah. I, get, like, I buy from It's Whole like Food. four for five. Four for five dollars. That's wild. That's almost wow. That's like four times cheaper than I got them for. Huh. What, can I ask you where you buy these gilded avocados? <laughs> <laughs> Just at uh, you know the local supermarkets, Kroger and stuff. Is there is there a surprise? A surprise uh, in the pit, like a Kinder egg? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You crack open uh, and then right in there, they've actually got some toast seeds that you plant, so that way you can start <laughs> a garden of avocados and toast. Yes. That is fantastic. I would love that avocado. You should patent that, Ian. I think that will go a long way. Yeah, I mean, I've only got a couple more years to cash in before the millennials, you know, move out of this phase, though. So who knows how long I've got. Yeah, you fucking millennials are in for a ride. Okay, we'll talk about that later as well. Um, Anyway. (laughs) To feed into another stereotype, my cat is scratching at the door, so I'm going to go let him back in. I'll be right back. Is there is there a stereotype about millennials and cats that I was not aware of? I'm I'm, I'm just as lost as you are. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know either. Chelsea, we're confused. Uh, <laughs> is there is there a stereotype about millennials and cats, or was this a pure cat stereotype? Oh, I don't know. Either or works for me. Oh, <laughs> all right. So you just co- she just totally made that up. She we like this it. kind of stereotype relativism here, apparently. Yes, it, yeah. That was the kind of the, this is the kind of quality of. Uh, of transition that I frequently use in my podcast. There's lots of there's lots of memes that are like, "Oh, my friends are getting married, and I just have a cat." But yeah, I feel like it's a thing, sort of, maybe. Oh, okay, no, we can, we we'll let it go. It's oh, I'm more into the like, all my friends are getting married and having babies, and here I am with crippling depression. I feel like that <laughs> that's the millennial way. That's yeah, that's a whole <laughs> subgenre of memes, quite frankly. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> I see the memes. I think the memes discussion is going to happen before the what the fuck discussion. (laughs) 
But okay, I have to write down memes now. Must discuss memes. Alex, do you have a cat? Because it, it could maybe help with that. <laughs> uh, I have a cat at my parents' house, but Aww. right now I have a dog who doesn't like when I talk to people who aren't her. So. <laughs> Wait, Alex, is, is, is Speedy your cat? Yeah, I, I picked him out and he sort mm. of uh, spent a lot of time with me growing Aww. up, so I consider him mine more than anyone. That makes sense. So Speedy, definitely Alex's cat. Got it. Um, okay, so anyway, back to the what the fuck meter, you millennials, you. Um, so from on this on this scale from one to ten. Now I'm curious, as you know, your elders frequently find themselves at the mm, top end of the scale. And Alex's mom once memorably said she was not between one and ten; she was Mac three. <laughs> It, it was a tough day. So if you guys, and again, we'll put Chelsea on the spot first. If you guys had to rate yourself on that scale, where do you think you would fall at the moment as we're sitting here talking today? Um, I actually had a few days off of work this week. And typically when I'm not working, I kind of tune out of the news. So I don't know, maybe like a three or four on the what the fuck meter. The mm. Mueller report definitely was kind of like a emotional roller coaster. I was excited that we were getting it. And then obviously there's mixed reviews on, you know, what it all means. So it's like, oh, is he going to get fired? Is he going to get impeached? Or is it really just going to keep going as it's been? So kind of up and down. But I haven't Excellent. been as tuned in as I normally am. Excellent. Alex, what about you? Well, it's been an interesting week for me. I too was off. I got eye surgery. So that was pretty high on the what the fuck scale. But then when I went back to work, there's also a couple of things going on. I'm about to out myself here too. Um, mm. So the Mueller report, obviously, that's coming out. And then my paper subsequently saying, clear, Trump is clean. That was a major like nine on the what the fuck scale. I think all of us over in my corner was just thinking, where did we go wrong? <laughs> Like what's what's gonna happen? Is everyone gonna leave? How many people are we going to have to like clear off their computers because they're about to quit their jobs right now because they hate the direction that it's going? So that that's sort of um, a nine there. But I'm gonna bring it back down to a five because I think we're gonna pass. I feel like a lot of this stuff is going to pass, and people are probably gonna die down with the news and not care as much anymore because I think that's just the way things are kind of going now. So mm -hmm. it's realistic to expect that type of thing. And I, I expect my paper to continue to do ridiculous things as the election nears. That's just to be expected. Mm -hmm. yeah. that, that makes sense. This is much more political than I thought it would be. I am extremely surprised after all three of you said that you weren't really that into politics. We're now doing a full-on Mueller review. <laughs> this is well, you can't. Exciting. You brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't actually. Chelsea did. Well... You, I don't know. It's a politics podcast, right? So I feel like that's it, what you're asking it, about. <laughs> well, that that was part of it. But, you, you know, whatever, whatever it is, I wanted to be open and accepting. But if you're going to do guys are going to do politics, then yay. Um, Ian, <laughs> what about you? How, how has your week been? Uh, it, you know, it's been pretty fine. I think my what the fuckometer is probably somewhere in the, oh, we'll say four. I tend to be a pretty jaded, cynical person most of the time. And so... 
I, I'm generally in a perpetual state of expecting the absolute worst. I like to just set my expectations <laughs> low so we can only go up from there. So, you know, I, I think that I just pretty perpetually hover in the three to five range. It's not often I manage to make it above or below that. So mm, That's an interesting approach. I could recommend that to a few people, as a matter of fact. <laughs> that is uh... So since we already kind of got into the Mueller business and we're at least tangentially talking about politics, how do you guys feel about politics? You all have parents who are really into politics. How has that been growing up? Is that something that you discuss with your parents at all? I mean, me and both my parents are pretty well aligned. Like we all typically vote Democrat. Um, I'm maybe a little more liberal than they are. But I don't, we're liberal about different things too. But both my parents get into, you know, deep and heated conversations about politics. And I don't, I like talking about it, but I don't like getting like, like voice elevated, like, angry about it just because I don't know part of me is like what's the point like there's no point in getting that worked up about stuff if I don't know on a day-to-day we can't do much I mean I do my best to you know try to make change where I can on my level and yeah I don't know (laughs) that makes sense Alex how about you yeah it's kind of the same situation we were all liberal in our household I think there's a couple of sticky issues that we don't necessarily align on. I think we haven't really spoken much about like LGBTQ equality, that type of stuff. It's that never really was broached in the house. And I don't, I don't know if it will be again, because I think we're still in the South and a lot of those like racial and I guess some sexuality type discussions are still hot button discussions. So that's something that maybe I could work on a little more. And then my other one is climate change right now. And that's, that's something that I'm having a lot of trouble just like reaching out to everyone on and including like people who live with me, my boyfriend, just trying to get people to align on like what that really means for the rest of us and how we're going to continue to work towards fighting it. Cause that's something I'm trying to get everyone prepared for is like, guys, this is happening. Like we need to adjust everything. So Yeah, on a daily basis, I find climate change to be, like, one of the scariest things going on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it definitely makes me cynical very quick. I'm like, what's the point? We're all going to be done in 50 years. (laughs) Not that I don't think we should fight, but you know what I mean. On those those days where you just feel like giving up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ian, how about you? Uh, I mean, my parents and I align quite well on the politics that are important to me. And I think it's, it's an interesting quirk because rather than discussing their political views openly i don't think i had an you know open political discussion with either of my parents about their exact politics when i was 15 or 16 uh, but before that it was more just the values that they instilled in me led me to have similar politics to them and so i definitely find myself butting heads with them on issues that are not as important to me but i think that on all the fundamental things we're we're very much in accordance about what we believe politically. So when you say butting heads on things that are not that important to you, can you give us an example? Yeah, so my my mother, at least idealistically, uh, pragmatically not so much, but her ideology tends to be more laissez-faire, and I am definitely uh, the millennial stereotype in the sense that, you know, big government is right up my alley. Right up so, your alley, as in you would like big government, or have something to say that and feel about big government? Right up my alley in that I, I like it. I find that 
I, I, I have a very cynical view of people. I think that they're wholly self-serving and I think that that sort of social regulation is necessary for society to function in a sort of utilitarian way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, during the current political climate, I don't know where you get the idea that uh, politicians tend to be self-serving. <laughs> Just a hunch. Um, I don't know about you guys, especially you, Alex, living in North Carolina or growing up there. But even though me and my parents align well, my extended family were very much at odds. So when you're talking about yeah. Daniel, like not being able, can you talk about it with your family or not? It's definitely something we try to leave out of conversation at like holidays and stuff. And especially during the last big election, it was, it was kind of a... <laughs> Let's just not talk about it so that we can survive this dinner kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, the extended family is a total wreck. Like, I would not touch any, like, forget LGBTQ issues. It's like, can you even talk about Obama around them? Can you talk about how Trump is, like, possibly corrupt? No, no, you can't. Yeah, you can't even mention Russia, which should not be <laughs> by far yeah. to say without them getting defensive. And I'm like, I didn't even say anything. Yeah, I've mastered the the sort of polite smile and nod when when a relative says something. Just wow. Sometimes <laughs> you just gotta smile, nod, and and leave the room. Yeah, I'm curious actually. Having talked to journalists and also to people that are just interested in politics, one of the things that keeps coming up is that with millennials, on the one hand, people are like, "Oh, millennials, we have so much hope. They are wonderful. They care about so many things. They are." They are progressive. They are fantastic. And we and all of our hope rests on them because when they finally start voting, they will change America in the progressive way that we would like. And then almost on the same token, it's, well, you know, millennials can't count on them. They don't vote. They don't really know what they're talking about. They're lazy. All they want is handouts. It's very, very tiring. Um, they don't really do anything other than complain. How do you guys think you personally fit into that or your friends fit into that? And are you confronted with either one of those in your daily life? Now I'm thinking. <laughs> I say um a lot and you're probably not going to be able to edit it out. So I try to of think I so, I, so that I don't say it too much. You're underestimating um, his power here. <laughs> I want to keep you up for hours editing out my ums. Um, anyway, I just did it again. I think I understand why people say that, why people say that we just complain. And I think maybe it has to do with our access to the internet. And that's something that older generations didn't have growing up. So we do have the ability to get our opinions out quickly and frequently. So maybe that comes off as complaining, but I don't have any friends that I know of that don't vote. Um, we frequently talk about current events and issues that we care about. Um, a lot of my friends I know are pretty charitable. We all have causes that we donate to. Um, I've gone to a couple marches with friends, again, for things we care about. So I think, I, I don't know, it's, you can't, it's hard to put all of your energy into everything, right? Like, we can't be spread that thin. We don't have that many hours in the day. But I do think millennials kind of walk the, walk the talk about the things that are really important to them. Alex, do you feel similarly? Yeah, I do. And the one thing I want to bring up, too, is that I think a lot of us do mobilize really well on the Internet. And I think we do complain pretty loudly on the Internet. But the problem now I think that we're facing is that we're trying to convince people on the Internet who didn't go up on the Internet to communicate in that way, I think. And we're not really used to it. 
So the way that we want to see change happen is probably like online. A lot of it's going to be mobilizing online. Whereas when you're older, you kind of think like, oh, you need to go to a protest, like physically be there to really make your opinions heard. And I think that's one thing that we're going to see hopefully be different because I think it's a lot easier to get people's opinions out on the internet, like how they really feel. And maybe eventually I think one thing that will be helpful too is voting on the internet. Like that's such a novel idea. It's really, it shouldn't be that crazy, but I don't see it happening anytime soon just because of the politics around it. But yeah, I think that's that's one platform I think is really good for millennials right now. But then on the other hand, I'll, I'll flame us a little bit. There's still like this whole millennial adulting culture that I personally don't feel like I fit into. Like I consider myself taking care of myself, but there are so many people out there who just don't know how things work. Like they don't understand how you make bread. They don't understand how you make pancakes. They are mesmerized when you tell them how to do like the simplest, stupidest things. Like how do you grow a garden? Like it's crazy to me. That's just the one thing where I'm like, I think that we've been so coddled by convenience in a lot of ways that I think there are a lot of issues like that where I'm running into. I just see like, God, you guys are ridiculous like this so that's that's one thing i'll flame them on where do you think that culture of infantilization comes from how is that even possible and how do you, do you are you saying that you meet these kinds of people in new york city oh yeah i mean there's there's a whole stereotype of like new york people who don't know how to cook and i, I you see it a lot like these people just order meals or something but they, i don't think they're used to having to do a lot of their own stuff but the funny thing about this is like baby boomers can criticize us about it, but ultimately they're the ones who kind of raised us to be this way. Mm -hmm. And I think you have Gee. to be like a person who um, takes initiative to not be like that, but it's very easy to become not so self-sufficient in this era of convenience that we've created, which also ties a little into industrialization and just, climate change believe it or not because a lot of um, a lot of stuff that we have now is built around convenience like ordering out and to-go cups and to-go everything and that kind of stuff like it was built by baby boomers ultimately but that's just kind of a culture now of like industrialization consumerism buy 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 everything and you don't really have to think about it anymore and that's I think that's where that's coming from too. Yeah, even like you can think of all the subscription products that are out there, like, don't even worry about your toothbrush. We got you. Yeah. <laughs> so that convenience thing is definitely true. Yeah, absolutely. Razor, Harry's razors. Um, uh, <laughs> is this where you go into the ad spiel? So, no, sorry. That was a POTUS. That was a, press pool, a POTUS press pool related joke. Um, uh, Ian, how, how about you? Do you do you encounter these... Uh, these these boomer feels about millennials without the boomers really taking any responsibility for any of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's it's <laughs> I think it's pretty irresponsible to complain about the participation medals we got when we were six or whatever. But six year olds don't give themselves participation medals, you know, <laughs> so I definitely think there's that. And I, I think I object to these stereotypes, not in isolation, but as a whole, because they can't have their cake and eat it too. There's this dichotomy, this cognitive dissonance where they want to say that we don't care about anything and that we're lazy, but also that all we do is complain. You know, I'm sure that when exactly. Martin Luther nailed his 99 theses to the door of the church, 
there were a bunch of Catholics somewhere going, oh, that Martin Luther, he's so lazy. All he wants to do is complain about the church, you know, and the guy <laughs> sparked the Protestant Reformation. So, And he's destroyed our door. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you know, add petty vandalism to his list of religious sins. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I, I think I really object to that dichotomy. I, I would have a much easier time stomaching their criticism, believe it or not, if they were willing to be more consistent in their position, because I rarely find people who hold one or the other view. They usually hold both of them in tandem. I was actually having this conversation with friends yesterday about entitlement and millennials. And I think some of it too is a lot of millennials maybe just know our value and are willing to make noise about other people valuing us the way we should be. So when people are like, they think they deserve more money or blah, blah, blah. But we do work hard for that. And, you know, we do have more loans and the world, we're not getting as much out of the world as the generations before us. So I don't know, I think there's a role there too. No, I think you're finding yourself in a particularly tough situation. I mean, leaving the Trump situation aside for a moment where, you know, other things have somehow come to the forefront. Even in the Obama years, it was clear that millennials were going to find themselves in some tough spots. But how do you feel now going forward as we're as we're barreling, as Alex mentioned earlier, we're barreling toward this 2020 election? Do you pay any attention yet to these candidates? Is there anybody who speaks to you or that you're even remotely interested in? Or are you leaving this until later? Well, I'm from Massachusetts, so Elizabeth Warren is rocking my socks off right now. Um, I'm loving that she's coming out with all these solutions and policies. Um, one thing that Hillary obviously had to face, which she shouldn't have, but is her likability. And I think Warren's coming out strong with that too. I mean, to me, she's, at least to me, she seems likable, right? But she is in my backyard, so I can recognize that. There are other candidates, I think, that, you know, seem like they're doing good things so far, and I'm not ruling anybody out just yet. Um, I did tell my mom we weren't allowed to talk about Joe Biden on vacation because I was just kind of sick of that. Ooh, um, tell me about tell me about that, <laughs> Chelsea, because I, I mean, without enraging your mom when she listens to this, but Tell me about how you how you feel about Biden versus how you feel about Warren. Um, I mean, I don't even know if I can talk super educatedly about it, but I'm just kind of like, all right, you know, we've had USVP, you've been around, I'm ready for someone newer or fresher, um, or somebody of a different gender or a different race or a different or sexual orientation. I just think I'm kind of had it with the old white guys, not to, you know, mm-hmm. not to offend, <laughs> but I know, I understand oh, you, that he probably do you mean because I'm an old white guy. Fuck. I didn't even re- <laughs> that only occurred no, to I me meant right to now. All, I meant to the other pooligans, not you, Daniel. You're the cool oh. one. <laughs> <laughs> she knows how to be on the podcast. That's not okay. <laughs> um, I do understand his appeal and that he may help sway voters who may be in the middle and might not be sure who to vote for. But I don't know. I kind of just think we could do better. One of the complaints, right, from the older generation who really have those Biden feels and Biden still technically, I think right now in the most polls, he's le- he's the leading candidate as far as numbers go for whatever that's worth at the moment, which is really not much. But he is. When you say you're ready for somebody new with fresher ideas, with a different gender, possibly a different ethnicity, how do you value that against what what the older generation has so many feels for which is somebody who they feel brings experience and brings policy knowledge brings foreign foreign policy knowledge um how how do you value those two against one another and then decide that no you're more for the change 
Um, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think that there are plenty of candidates out there that meet those other criteria I listed that do still have a lot of really valuable experience. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not going to vote for Trump. So whoever wins on the Democratic <laughs> side has my vote, you know, like I'm not going to be that pissed about it. But this is where I stand for now. Yeah, that was going to be my follow up question. But Alex, go ahead. What what's what are your feels about 2020, if you have any? Yeah, well, in terms of possible candidates, I'm kind of on the fence about a lot of the Democratic ones. Like I most align with Elizabeth Warren, I think, as well. But I'm just not sure if she's able to get the job done because I don't want another Hillary situation. And I'm kind of in this place where I want someone progressive. Like, like I would love if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ended up in the White House at one point. I don't, I don't know yes. if she will, but we'll <laughs> see how that goes. But I would love if someone like that ended up there. But right now, I feel like we just need someone to get us back to normal. And for me, I, I don't know if that's Biden. I, I don't know if Biden is the right choice. But for me, I think someone like Beto O'Rourke would really be a good candidate to sort of like bring us back to this lawful neutral to go for another millennial meme <laughs> format there. So I think he would be someone just to like bring us back to pre-Trump era type of politics, hopefully. That's, that's my main goal. Okay, Ian, go ahead. Feels 2020. I think I I depart from a lot of millennials in my views. Um, I mean, I, I have been sort of window shopping, as it were, at the, the current candidates, mm-hmm. the people who might toss their hat in the ring. But I, I tend to find myself more on the side of the establishment in the sense that I would really prefer someone more progressive than whoever I guarantee the DNC will end up uh, putting forth as the candidate. But I also tend to believe that working within the the establishment is a better way of bringing about change than a more sudden radical change, uh, especially for, you know, a a more temporally permanent change. And so I I think that (laughs) as I've already forgotten, I'm afraid I have the memory of a goldfish, but either Chelsea or Alex said that they would vote for whoever the the Democratic Mm, Party put forth regardless. Yes, thank you. Uh, so I, I have a feeling I'll find myself in that same same boat, and I'm not a registered uh, Democrat, so I will not be voting in their primaries. Mm-hmm. Oh. Do you, Alex? Do you also feel that you'll vote for whatever the Democrats do? Is in essence, do do all three of you agree that not Trump is more important to you guys than any particular candidate? Yeah, <laughs> not Trump yes. and no Republicans. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna write in Elizabeth Warren as a third, you know, as a third party write in, you know, I'm gonna go for the, I'm gonna go for whoever can beat Trump. Yeah, I think a lot of people last last time, right, when when it was between Bernie and Hillary, it was a a, a pretty fierce, a pretty fierce primary, first of all, then once it was over, and, and Bernie lost, a lot of those voters did not turn out clearly for Hillary, nor did a lot of other voters, but particularly Sanders voters were not interested in whatever Hillary was selling. So this time again, Sanders is around doing his thing. He's uh, He did well on Fox the other day, and, and people appreciated that, except the president, who did not. <laughs> uh, he, he complained about it vocally. 
and just loudly. like a millennial, and, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He just was, kidding. Yeah. He's not welcome in our club. <laughs> no, he's not, but he certainly behaves like one now that you say it, like on the internet constantly. His tweets would make you think he belongs. <laughs> yeah. Did any of you have any feelings about Sanders at the time or now? I'm always surprised that young people respond so strongly to Sanders. And I was curious whether any of you have any thoughts about Bernie Sanders and his campaign this time. I mean, I, de I definitely drank the Sanders Kool-Aid last time he was around. I actually voted for him in the primary. Um, and then after he lost, I don't know, late, months later, I was like, oh, shit, you know, what? I should have voted for Hillary. <laughs> She's really on my heart. <laughs> um, but it didn't matter because I'm in Massachusetts. So Hillary won mm. anyway. Yeah. So when I saw he was running again, it was honestly like an eye roll moment. I'm just like, go away. Uh, he just seemed to like fuck a lot of stuff up last time for, you know, not directing his supporters to get behind Hillary. He just has a lot of divisive rhetoric and he has some really, I, some good ideas that other candidates are also including in their platforms, but I don't, I don't think we need him <laughs> anymore. I'm ready for him to go away permanently. And, and Ian mentioned before, like, wanting to work within the establishment and it really annoys me that bernie seems to he comes out and says he's anti-establishment yet he's using establishment rules to kind of play the game so right he uses the establishment when it's convenient for him but exactly. if it's not gonna work for yeah. him then he's going to fight them yes thank you i was gonna be so curious what his cabinet would look like like who does he afterwards then deem okay to be in a cabinet of bernie sanders who are those people that's an excellent question i can't imagine it either <laughs> hopefully we won't find out too <laughs> you know <laughs> but but let's say it is sanders so let's say we go through all of this bernie kind of surges instead of fades like last time would you still be okay voting for bernie over trump yeah i just i don't think when alex was talking before about bringing it back to like a status quo like a workable government I don't think Bernie's going to get us there either. I think the other side will see him probably as radical as we see Trump. I don't necessarily agree with that, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I'll probably get behind blue, but <laughs> I don't think Ber I don't think Bernie's going to get it done for us. You guys are, like we said earlier, millennials are are known or or are alleged to be complaining a lot online. But of course, they don't only complain a lot online. They just are very proficient at using social media, which was not really around earlier. How do you guys use social media? Do you use any of it? Are you interested in it? Which parts of it do you use? And what services are now considered millennial cool? And which ones are really fucking lame? I mean, I have moved away from social media, especially in the last couple months, I find that my life is just far more enjoyable without it. And uh, <laughs> admittedly, some of that is just because I keeping up with politics on a daily basis is really draining to me. And it, it's, you know, a bit of a double-edged sword where I want to keep up, but I, I also, you know, I want to be informed, but I also don't want to be mm. sad and frustrated 24-7. So I, I find myself never going on Facebook unless I specifically get a notification about it. Uh, I use Instagram solely as a future job insurance. Uh, you know, I've been told by everyone on the planet that my future employers are going <laughs> look to look at, at my social media. So I make <laughs> wow. future job appropriate posts to prove that I have a full professional and social life so they can go on and be like, oh, look, he has friends and here's a community service project. So 
I most of the social <laughs> media that I use is very propagandistic. Uh, <laughs> to be to be honest with you, I barely use Twitter. Most of what I use Twitter for is to save funny things I find for myself. Uh, you know, I'll see something funny that I like and I'll, I'll retweet it. So then in a couple months when I'm feeling down, I'll scroll back through my own Twitter and see, you know, 8,000 retweets with no <laughs> likes, which is fine. And, you know, laugh at my own, <laughs> the, the things I found humor, I, the things I found humorous four months ago. So, but to answer the second part of that question, I think Twitter is definitely where the, the youths, the young people have, have moved to these days. Facebook is definitely no longer cool. Uh, but I don't think the the older generations are too interested in the media side of things, so I don't see Instagram uh, or Snapchat for that matter. Alex, since you're professionally online, since a relatively young age, <laughs> how has your social media consumption changed over time? Oh, it's really interesting. I think I've been on social media since like live journal days, if you can consider wow. that social media, like that's like the very beginnings of that. And of course, on MySpace, and I signed up for Facebook when you had to be actually affiliated with the school. I think I lied about it to get on because all my friends in Canada had it. And so I had to um, get on it. So I've, I've sort of like grown up with this. And it's really interesting. Like, I'll go ahead and just name off the ones that I think are cool now. I think Twitter is a hot spot because all the people who went off of Tumblr because they were mad about banning nipples went on there so i think twitter's really cool now because they took that user base over facebook is definitely not cool anymore the nipple user base has moved that is good to yes that look it up it's excellent. totally a thing <laughs> and then instagram is cool and snapchat isn't cool anymore i don't think i think millennials gen z is using it more as like a chat tool i mm -hmm. think but i don't think it's being adopted as much by the other user bases because others have abandoned it but it's interesting like my feelings about it and my feelings are eventually i think instagram is going to become less and less popular because of the way that it makes us feel so last year was sort of like my battle with instagram i would say because we're all very well if you spend a lot of time on instagram we're all very influenced by what we're seeing like i pay attention to a lot of fashion influencers and other kinds of influencers And that was sort of having this, it was to the detriment of my own psyches. And it was having a moment where I just needed to get off of it for my own benefit. Because I could see people having like a great time all the time. And I was like, oh, I need to do this or do that. And sometimes it leads you to do cool things, but most of the time it just makes you feel bad. So I think a lot of us are going to have to like come to terms with that. And I think eventually we'll get back to actually wanting to share things with each other. And interestingly enough, I think a lot of people who aren't millennials are starting to use social media for its true purpose. Whereas the, we see our parents now sharing all these life updates. And the only way that I know about other people is through what their parents are posting about them. <laughs> so hmm. it, I think that's kind of like the direction that we're going to be going. I don't think it'll happen on Facebook and maybe even Instagram because Instagram is also owned by Facebook. So with all the issues they've been having recently, which they decided to announce during the Mueller report so it would get covered up. <laughs> like, I, I don't yep. think that they're going to be relevant in the future, hopefully. And maybe we'll come to more of a centralization right now. But it's hilarious that Twitter is him inching money, but we're still using it so much. I use Twitter a lot. It's like my personal diary. 
and because it's my personal diary, I made a professional one. So <laughs> that's that's my main reason. Mm -hmm. So every little thought that I have just goes on Twitter all the time. Yeah, same. I've been doing social media since CompuServe had chat rooms, if you want to call that <laughs> social media. So that was like eons ago. That was like before any of you were born, I think. And and it's it's fascinating to me how it's changed. Like my my kids who are my daughter who's fifteen, everything she does is either Snapchat or Instagram. Mostly Snapchat though, um, because those streaks and and yeah. uh, and also the the seeing where other people are currently. They actually leave that on, which I find absolutely horrifying. But they're fascinated. I have by it, it on too. It's fascinating. <laughs> see i would i would feel prosecuted already like that that plays into a serious paranoia that i apparently have perhaps due to my age but i just do not like that idea at all but the map has easter eggs on it right now i know how can you say no to that i know we were we were leaving home i i was driving my kids uh my kids to their oh moms God, just and that it, they right? just announced the easter egg. <laughs> Yeah, chelsea is discovering it now uh, and they just and they just had started the easter eggs and and she was reading it. She was like, she was reading the instructions that they gave, which was, please do not <laughs> look for Easter eggs in other people's houses or yards. <laughs> like, do not, do not trespass. Please do not do while driving. Do not m drive into unmarked passages. I'm like, this reminds me of Pokemon Go. How many disclaimers? Yeah, it does. Well, that's that's exactly Smarter what it them. is, really. <laughs> it's Poke Eggs Go. <laughs> um, I probably have an account with all of the majors I definitely see myself using Facebook less and less and I mean there's plenty of days where I'm like why don't I just delete this um, I have found that now mm -hmm. I use Facebook more for the groups than for connecting with actual people I know um, I find mm -hmm. groups that are related to podcasts I listen to or interests I have there's like people who I don't know, there's groups for people who have dogs or groups for people who like plants. And like, those are some of the things I'm in. Mm -hmm. um, so in those ways, it's nice to have some community to be like, hey, I don't know what XYZ is. Does anybody have any feedback? Or, hey, I'm going to this new place. Anyone have recommendations? Um, but I mean, I think Twitter is probably the most useful form of social media that I use. And I do really like Instagram. I like pictures. Um, and sharing, I, I like to travel a lot. So I like to share that through Instagram. Um, and I do find, I can totally see where you're coming from, Alex, like with the FOMO and like the comparison that, that Instagram kind of fosters. But I also find that it's the easiest to curate. So I used to follow yeah. some of, you know, influencers as well. And when I found myself feeling shitty, for not doing things that they were doing. I just stopped following them. And then started following like i don't know more cute animal <laughs> accounts or whatever so <laughs> in that way i really like it um it's super interesting to hear ian that you use it to make yourself to like market yourself i mean which is a good way to use it i guess but um yeah i mean i think for and it it serves a dual purpose as well because while i don't personally care too much about it you know, there are still plenty of people in my life who do care. And they're like, oh, I was really glad you posted on Instagram the other day. That was a cool, you know, X you did or whatever. Yeah, that's And cool. so I think that I I do use it socially as well, but it's not my personal motivation for using it. Gotcha. Um, When you brought that up, it made me think of LinkedIn because a lot of people I work with use LinkedIn and they'll like share articles and talk to each other. And I have like, 
I have an account, but I'd never go on it. And when people are like, did you see that thing? I'm like, no, like that, that platform blows. <laughs> like I'm never using that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for all my, my gripes with Facebook, uh, Facebook Messenger, which they've kind of split from Facebook a little bit. You know, they're separate apps now. Yeah. Messenger is its own site independent mm-hmm. of Facebook, which I'm very grateful for. But it's my main, you know, messaging app. I, yeah. Especially on Android. Like, I love the chat heads. I love all the features that come with it. It's by far my favorite way to keep in touch with people. Hmm. Ooh, they got you. They, <laughs> they got, got you. Yeah, they really somehow. did. They did. Um, one thing that'd be that interests me, and I don't know if this happens to you guys too, but I have like a few younger cousins and I follow them on Instagram and it seems like the generation younger than us is really concerned with feedback from people. Kind of like you were saying, Ian, how you don't get any likes um, on your tweets, but they're like <laughs> always calling me out again. No, That's I fine. didn't mean to. <laughs> as soon as I said that, I was like, no, <laughs> that came out wrong. Um, no, but they're super obsessed with how many people are paying attention to them where the way the three of us just described it, that's not really something I ever post worrying about. Like, I'm never posting to get likes. It's just things that I want to share. And do you guys no, see I, that No, I too? think that's a really important point. Uh, and I do see that. Even, I see that a lot among my peers as well, where, like, I've, I've seen my peers have almost full-blown breakdowns because they were like, I posted on Instagram this, I thought it was a super cute selfie, and it only got, like, 160 likes oh my god and you know i'm just trying to wrap my brain around every part of that sentence you know that whole thing was basically a foreign language to me no i i can get with that yeah even i think our generation uh you know millennials i think is very concerned with that the how you know how many impressions you get on twitter even it's important and they they check this i've been with people you know over the course of a night and i'll see them constantly on their phone checking to see how many likes they're up to or how many retweets it's gotten, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Has any of you ever met an actual influencer? I think I have. I went to high school with like a lifestyle blogger and she's pretty popular, but I don't, I don't really know, I guess what defines an influencer. Like, yeah, I was about to ask for a definition. Have not met Kylie Jenner. If that's what you mean. (laughs) Well, it's, it's sort of above the magical, I don't know, a hundred K followers. line. Oh yeah. Okay. So, I just outed myself, actually. I went to events that they were promoting, actually, now that I think about it, like someone with over a million followers. And I met her. And it's mm-hmm. it's a really weird experience now that I think about it because you feel like you're best friends with these people. And you're like, oh, I know about this and I know about that. And like, how's your hand doing? Because I know you burnt it the other day because you see it on Instagram mm-hmm. stories. And now I think about it, I'm like, wow, that's really weird. <laughs> and I know so much about this person. It's like, I'm one in a million to them. Yeah, it creates a strange kind of intimacy, which I think that is really unique to social media. I, I know that Julie Mason, whose radio program your parents and I listen to, frequently has that experience as well, where people who listen to the radio program daily feel like they are her best friend, like they know everything about her. Are you adding yourself here, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somewhat. I mean, it, it, it creates this kind of intimacy and she interacts with everybody on, on Twitter. So everybody really feels like they, they know her probably much better than they actually do. And when they realize that that's not that kind of relationship that they're thinking it is, it can be a little bit jarring at times, yeah. uh, let's say. But I also, I've met influencers in LA. And I think what people don't think of when they look at those Instagrams is how managed that is and how much of it is purely about about business yeah 
how much of it is 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 done by managers is done by a team is put together professional photographers take the instas take the sel- the, the quote-unquote selfies uh, manage the stream talk to the people who who post on it and i think for kids especially i i see it with my with my kids who are 13 and 15 the way that they relate to instagram is probably the most toxic out of any of the networks or, or any of the social oh, networks yeah. that i'm aware of yeah because it so. it creates that 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 feeling of a feeling of fomo like you said earlier but also that feeling of I'm just not this great and chances are I can never live up to the stream that's going on here and I have a feeling like I should because if I did, then I would get the likes that I really, in my heart, would desire. Yeah, and I mean, it, it kind of helps, <laughs> if helps is the right word to use here, it certainly exacerbates the problem that Instagram is a, not exclusively, but almost exclusively media-based site. You know, you yeah. can't you can't just create a text post on Instagram. Most people are just going to look at the picture and if the picture captures their attention, maybe they'll read the caption. So you can't, it, it's all about that superficial, you know, how does it look ocularly? You don't have, you can't really <laughs> inject substance into just a picture in the same right. way you could on like Twitter where you could make, you know, a witty tweet with 280 characters or a politically charged tweet or something you care about. I'm also curious. I noticed that none of you mentioned YouTube at no. all. Oh, yeah, is... I forgot. I'm almost on there all the time. It takes up all of my battery. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what do you do on YouTube? What do you what do you watch on there? Or how do you still watch television at all? Or is it all YouTube all the time? I, I watch TV shows, but those are on streaming services. But I do watch a lot of mm. YouTube videos because I have uh, YouTube Red and I just download them and watch them <gasps> on the train. So I just pick like the ones that are trending or various subscriptions ones that make me feel connected somehow to whatever is going on various influencers like all that kind of stuff it's it really it's kind of like a brain dump sometimes i follow a lot of cooking ones too try to learn something from it yeah about you i'm really i'm really sort of mad about youtube at times again my kids are fascinated both by by influencers, my my son by gaming, my my daughter by makeup and style, but she, but occasionally they really come away with it with something they've learned or a new skill that they've acquired or something that they needed to know that they actually can look up on YouTube in a way that you can't on Instagram because they will literally. Yeah, explain that is to like you. the only thing I really use YouTube for is when I'm trying to figure out how to do something. <laughs> but it's. I mean, the tutorials are super helpful. Yeah, for sure. I think I used it this night to figure out how to make like a perfect burger. It didn't work, but <laughs> and I kind of felt bad about myself. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but I tried. Do you think someone would just go on the internet and tell lies? Absurd! Unbelievable! Inconceivable! So what? What ultimately went wrong with the burger? Because I now we hear that YouTube too can apparently send you in a shame spiral. So what is? <laughs> what was wrong with that burger? I think I I wasn't paying attention to it and I just overcooked it. But also, I I get very into this. this I watch like Epicurious and Bon Appetit. Those two. Mm-hmm. So they're like all about using the finest of ingredients. And of course, like I went across the street and bought three dollar pound of meat, which I don't think should personally exist, but it's all that <laughs> there is around here. So cheaper than avocado. Next time I'm gonna grind it up. Yeah. Exactly. The avocado was like one dollar. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> here. Yeah, that that should have made you maybe lightly suspicious, perhaps. Oh, I, I've been suspicious. It's just 
the only thing around here. <laughs> it's the only thing convenient right now. Got it. I, I think we are going to have to transition now to the things that we really want to talk about. Like, for instance, Alex. Oh, yeah. Uh, BTS became a thing. Last week, they were on Saturday Night Live. Everybody, like, gasped because apparently nobody had heard K-pop before <laughs> in the United States. Which is untrue. Which is completely untrue. I'm just saying the, the, the Saturday Night Live audience was... I, I don't know, shock, yeah. uh, overjoy. I don't know how to describe them, but they, they clearly, people had a hard time grasping what was going <laughs> on there. Yeah. Would be would be ever so grateful for a little K-pop primer, if you would be so willing. And tell us a, l- a little bit when you discovered it, why you liked it, and why you still enjoy it to this day. And occasionally shame people on Twitter, letting them know that if they're going to roll up on you with their, with their juvenile K-pop knowledge, you're going to definitely put them in place. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so... I, I did do that the other day, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> so K-pop history, I guess it goes back to like the 90s even. And I'll get into some Korean history too. Like Ian might give us art history. I'll give you some Korean history. So obviously they were kind of recovering from the war. And in the 90s, they had this IMF crisis and the country was really poor. I think they weren't doing very well economically. Their GDP was pretty low. And then all of a sudden, along with this entertainment industry, which is also given a stipend by the government, like this is a government sanctioned type of deal where they have these entertainment people and companies go out and find talent to sort of outsource overseas. So that kind of started like all in the 90s and then in the 2000s and started off what's called Hallyu, which is the Korean term for wave. And so they tried to sort of break into American markets. It wasn't really like super successful, but in Korea, they felt like they had their own kind of pop movement, which took a little bit from the NSYNC and Backstreet Boys type of deals while that was going on too. So those those were two kind of parallel. And then for some reason, Korea has not gotten away from the Backstreet Boys boy group model. It's still really popular there, which kind of makes it unique in its own way. And so from then they kind of had these groups that we're calling like second generation there was the first generation like SES and I guess Soteji and boys or the OG uh, k-pop groups and then you have your second generation so that's going to be like uh, girls generation wonder girls who have toured in the U.S. they toured with Jonas Brothers and did a song with Akon so that kind of like speaks to the time frame that they were <laughs> yeah, they were in in that time frame, like 2008. And that's when I got into K-pop. It's, that was like the height of the Hallyu, I would say, for my generation. And I was just drawn to it because it was different. And I liked listening to the different language. And I it was the only time that I really felt like I could resonate with pop music at, at all. I don't, I don't really know what happened. It just sort of like took my heart and never left i thought it like some people think it's a phase but for me i guess it wasn't and then from there i just kept listening to more and like finding more groups that i liked and keep coming back to it and then now there's this third generation of k-pop groups so like twice and blackpink so some of you may have seen blackpink alongside of bts they're like always trending on youtube and trying to make a big market for themselves in the U.S. too, they headlined Coachella last weekend. <laughs> so there's not it's not just BTS, but BTS is one of the bigger ones. 
I guess boy bands have more of a following for some reason. I think more girls can get behind mm-hmm. them. Sort of like a Beatles type of situation where they have more followers. And But BTS is really popular because they can all stream and get behind it and like rile up the crowd and everything. So I don't know how to feel about the SNL thing though. I thought I thought everyone loved it, but of course I'm in this like echo chamber that is Twitter. So I, I had mm-hmm. no idea that people had this reaction of like, who the hell are these people and what are they doing on this stage? <laughs> it was definitely not your generation, to be fair. No, I, I guess it's not. But it's interesting that you did say like, I don't know what K-pop is because the older generation seemed to love Kingdom style, which I feel <laughs> like is kind of an anomaly <laughs> in the K-pop world. Yeah. <laughs> well, that wasn't, I guess that was first of all, not an androgynous looking boy group. So I guess that probably helped. Yeah, I was just the one guy. dude doing weird dances. Alex, was that song Numa Numa that was like from forever ago? Is that K-pop? No, no, oh, I damn don't it. Know. I think that's some like Eastern European guy. I have no idea. <laughs> Sorry, I just added myself as knowing nothing. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think Ian has K-pop feels, though, he said. Uh, I do. I, I was very into Girls' Generation when they were sort of starting out. Uh, and then I, I had a bit of a long uh, kind of gap. But recently, uh, a game I play commissioned a, a K-pop song that ended up going to number one on the global charts. So that kind of... Which game? Uh, League yeah, of Legends. It was um, Pop Stars by KDA, yes. So that was, I mean, a very contrived song. It, it was a promotional advertisement basically for a new line of cosmetic effects for the game. Uh, and it came with a music video promoting the cosmetic effects as the members of the group were cosplaying basically as the characters. But, I mean, it was hugely successful. It went to number one in the global charts. So obviously a huge success story for the game, but... That kind of reminded me that, oh, hey, K-pop exists. And so I've been listening to some of that, BTS. Um, Jenny is a K-pop artist that I've been listening to a lot lately. Yeah, she's a member of Blackpink, too. So they're Okay, all... that, I, I've had, I knew that she was a, a breakoff from somewhere. And I was going to ask, is it weird for you to kind of exist on the fringe when you see how diehard some of these fans can be or, you know, very dedicated Oh my god, yeah, it, it is weird. I think that's what um, Daniel was talking about before, where I was complaining on Twitter, like, I saw these kids on the street camping out for BTS. They had been there for a week. So I worked, like, right across from the SNL studio, and I was just going for a walk, and I saw them on there, and I was like, what the hell is going on? And I see they're there for BTS, and I kind of want to, like, talk to them about it and be like, hey, I've been into K-pop a really long time, too. But they totally k-pop splained me and <laughs> they acted like i had no idea what they were talking about and to be fair they probably have a lot of stupid people asking them questions all day but i was trying to be like no i'm i'm one of you but i don't know if i quite fit in with that they're really it's a very exclusive club else. yeah they really are even though i probably know as much korean as they do and <laughs> have been have been there since they were like babies so I don't know how I feel about that. It's really strange. I feel like it's, but K-pop is my thing too. So I don't know. <gasps> puppy. Mad about it. <laughs> yeah, we hear a puppy. Where's the puppy at? Is that an outside puppy or somebody's That's puppy? That's my puppy. She's mad. I think mad someone's at the door. I don't know. She's mad you're talking <laughs> to us. Mm. Yeah, I think so. She's She agrees with K-pop. She doesn't know how she feels about those fans. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely seemed like yeah. jerks. 
<laughs> she agrees. Um, did you find most of that on, on YouTube when you were younger? Or was that accessible other than on YouTube? I think I found it on a blog, like a forum. Mm. When people used to have separate forums for things, now they just all use Reddit. But yeah, they used to have separate forums where that's where I found it. But it was on YouTube. Yeah, YouTube's been around since like 2004, I feel like. Even. Oh, yeah, I forgot to ask about Reddit earlier. How do you guys, does anybody have like 4chan? Uh, I, I'm not even going to mention it. <laughs> we'll stay away from that. Let's not go there. As if any of us would admit, even if we did. Yeah, 4chan and 8chan we're going to stay away from. But are any of you Redditors? Yeah. I'm like a Reddit okay. lurker. <laughs> I read it extensively. Uh-huh. I Glancing at my second monitor, I have six tabs open right now, all of Reddit. And that's a lot for me because I hate having cluttered tabs. So I normally keep it down to like one or two. So I, I think that's really a testament to, to how much I enjoy Reddit. I think I when I stopped using social media, I totally replaced it with Reddit. So we have now established the one true and m the most millennial sentence that has so far been said on this particular <laughs> podcast. When I glance at my second monitors, I see I have eight <laughs> tabs open. That is Put that in a time wow. capsule, Daniel, because somebody, <laughs> mm -hmm. well, I guess it would be a reverse time capsule. It would probably sound like a different language. An office yep. in 50 years and someone will, will pull that out to, to have it haunt me. <laughs> uh, I don't know, on that podcast, you mentioned that you had two monitors. Why did you only have two monitors, sir? <laughs> we just don't understand how, how a political candidate could expect to be competitive when they're only <laughs> running on two monitors. For your whole campaign, people will say, but the monitors. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, maybe I can wipe them off with a cloth. <laughs> uh, how did the Reddit obsession come around? So that that is something that you that you really enjoy because I have to admit, I I keep completely away from Reddit. No. I, mm -hmm. No. I think it was a kind of strange path to get here. But finish your thought first, please. Now I'm 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 really curious about it. I'm curious about people who really enjoy it because to me it seems like sort of like long-form Twitter, if that makes sense. Like, I, I can see the value in it, definitely. But some subreddits are super toxic, which is one reason why I keep away from it. Oh, that's true. But also, I it has not been on my radar as something that I should actually follow. So I'm, I'm curious what you what you guys get out of Reddit that you don't get from the other social media that we discussed. Maybe you guys want to start and I can expand a little bit since I think I use it the most. I, I think I I think I use it the least, so I'll start. Um, I pretty much only go to Reddit if I'm looking for something really specific. It's kind of how I treat YouTube, too. Um, I use it for traveling. I'll use it for gardening. Um, and then pretty much the only other ways I use it is if someone sends me there to look at something. But I don't typically go to Reddit just to browse. Um, I don't know why I don't. I guess... I just never know like where to start or <laughs> there's a lot going on there. <laughs> so I have a lot of opinions about this too. I personally, I have three Reddit tabs open at all times too. So I'm kind of in the same boat as Ian. I browse it a lot. I go to the popular page. I go to my subreddits, which are like focused on my hobbies, but also just trying to get news. And I will say this interesting tidbit of information. Our editor in chief, his homepage is Reddit. Hmm. And I think, and I was watching wow. one show and they said something like, Reddit is where you go for the news before the other people start reporting it or start reporting it. So that's where like everyone looks before CNN starts reporting things. And I think that's true. 
So if you are looking for a major news story to break, you can go to Reddit, reddit.com slash rnews, and basically the story will kind of be there ready to break. And a lot of the comments will have some kind of like conspiracy theory that turns out to be true. So if you kind of get deep into Reddit, that's definitely one thing that will happen to you. So I think a lot of people in news lurk Reddit a lot to get their news before other people start publishing it. You know, I think we may have just solved one of Chelsea's mom's enduring mysteries at work, where she has a guy who always seems to know about the news (laughs) before they happen on Twitter. I think we may have just solved that. Yeah. She's always like, he always seems to know ahead of time. So maybe that's it. This is how... Um, so Denise, who certainly will be listening to this, Denise, ask your ask your coworker whether maybe he's 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 trolling Reddit <laughs> for news, and then he brags What's about it. What's kind of funny too is I have yeah, I think you should out two him. people who I'm probably like constantly talking to who are on Reddit a lot. One of them's my husband, the other is just a close friend, and so it's like when important stuff comes up on Reddit, like I hear it from them. So it's almost the same phenomenon my mom has, except I use it. I'm like, oh, cool. I just learned this from them instead of, how did they know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And now your mom might be in the same boat. Okay, so, uh, Ian, your Reddit story, please. (laughs) I, you know, I was, I was sitting here kind of listening to, to everyone talk about their own Reddit experiences and pondering how, how I did end up here. (laughs) I think that years ago, you know, as a, as an early teenager, I started browsing Imgur, Imgur, there's, you know, some debate about oh, how you really? pronounce that. But the, the image staring site. Yeah. And they they have this sort of, or at the time, had this sort of rival with, with Reddit. And a lot of Reddit images are hosted on Imgur. Uh, mm. I think probably almost all of them, in fact. And so I would run across Reddit images. And at some point, I ended up on Reddit for something. I mean, someone probably sent me there. And then over time, I found myself kind of going back to look at specific subreddits. Um, sometimes when I was really bored, I would go read Ask Reddit, where people just post questions and people respond to them. Uh, and then I think that the reason I've stayed for so long is it does all the things I want about social media without all the things I hate. I actually really love that nobody on Reddit I know in real life and vice versa. And that I'm interacting with new yeah. people all the time. So you enjoyed the anonymity. Not even necessarily the anonymity, but the not having to deal with real life in a way. It's an escape. I'm not going to go on Reddit and see some sort of bad news from, you know, someone I know in real life. I'm not going to go on Reddit and see something really cool that, you know, someone else got a fellowship that I was also trying to get. You know, so I know that it's it's basically, a you know, something of a, a safe haven for me that I know I can go there and just hang out and not have to worry about all this stuff that I would have to normally worry about in real life. But how much karma do you have? Not much at all. I mostly <laughs> lurk. Um, most of the karma I have comes from, I, I used to be, I'm, I'm going to really out myself as a nerd here. I used to be a minor celebrity uh, related to games because I was the best in the world at a character played in the game. Huh. And so I was... Are we talking about League? Yeah, yes. I was the best at a, a League of Legends character a couple of years ago. I was one of the top 100, 200 players in the United States. Um, and so I, I was a bit of a minor celebrity because I wrote like a really extensive guide for this character. And I would show up and talk about this character in threads and stuff. And so most of my karma comes, comes from that. But <clears throat> I, I don't... I very rarely comment on Reddit. I, I spend most of my time lurking. What's your LOL rating now? 
Uh, well, actually, I just played one game earlier today. I, I have played very little the past couple months, but I, I completed my placements and I got Diamond 4, so. Oof. Yikes. Maybe I'll For get... people not familiar, that is that is brutal. <laughs> Maybe I'll get it back up to my former rating someday. It's a it that's a that game's a serious grind. I I could never wrap myself wrap my mind around that game at all. Yeah. And I've tried and I just the learning curve is just yeah. surreal. I I mean it's it's pretty brutal. I think it's a very polarizing game and you love it or you hate it. You're going to put 4000 hours in or four and be done with it. I feel you. I've played WoW forever. Actually, I played today. Not going to lie. But... You played WoW? Yeah, World of Warcraft. Yeah, no, I know what WoW <laughs> yeah. is. I can't believe you didn't know. Because I'm surprised that anybody still plays WoW. The last time I played WoW was when the Blood Elves first showed up. And ever after that, I was like, you know what? This is getting kind of stale <laughs> I don't know why I went back to it. I think I was yearning for some nostalgia or something. But no one's on there that I know anymore. So I'm just Yes, but myself. that's what I'm talking about. I, I'm now just confounded. Like the, the game is so unbelievably huge. There's so many places to go. That I, I don't even I wouldn't even have a concept of how to start anymore. It is, and I kind of feel like Ian here, where like um, I was the best in the world or best on my server at one thing, and I did everything. <gasps> what? And... At what? No, oh no! Now we're gonna do a deep investigation, <laughs> right? Now. No, I well, we were doing like server first kills of bosses all the time. Like we were competitively trying to kill the boss in a raid before the other people on the server did it. So we have a couple of the reverse kills from 2012. And what what did you play? I played a priest. Uh, you played it as a healer, though? Yeah, yeah, I did. Because shadow priests are evil. I'm a shadow priest now for leveling, but <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't even, I don't really play anymore. It's, it, it is really expansive. It's weird how these games are going to eventually die out, but we spent so much time on them because I used to have every achievement, everything that you ever wanted in that game. Wow. I spent so many hours doing it, and now it just grew, and I didn't keep up. <laughs> There's so much I don't have. Yeah, no, and raiding is tough. Raiding is like hours of hours of prep, and then hours of getting together, actually making it, clearing out the trash, and then moving to the boss, and then everybody yeah. getting everybody getting killed, rezzing everything, coming back. Oof. Yeah, three hours, three times a week. I think from like. 10 to 12 i did that all through high school and a little bit in college too wow yeah okay so that's those are serious wow creds alex i'm i'm duly impressed especially with <laughs> server first that is that is incredible chelsea hi 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 <laughs> do uh, chelsea do you play any video games chelsea i don't but i'm interested in listening to them so you guys talk about them um we my husband and i were recently talking and we we're like i think we would like video games but we just like don't <laughs> we just like don't ever try them <laughs> I, I i love they, they are so chelsea and her husband are quite outdoorsy i think that's fair to say right oh i would call us like medium outdoorsy i wouldn't go as far as quite but i appreciate the extra um credit you're giving me okay well they they are they are outdoorsy <laughs> because i've seen i know this because i've seen hiking pictures um <laughs> So when you guys sit around and sort of are like hiking somewhere and then one goes, you know, maybe we would really like video games. <laughs> no, it was like we're sitting on the couch watching another episode of whatever show we're binging. And I'm like, you know, I think we would like video games. <laughs> so which video games are you looking into? Oh, I have no idea. I literally Googled like 
like how much is a Nintendo Switch? No, like, it's so nerdy. Like it's so not nerdy that it's embarrassing. But um, yeah, I I would take recommendations. I'm not super into like um like war fighting games. So like a Call of Duty doesn't seem like I would like that. Um, well, but you name check. That's pretty good. Oh yeah, look at me dropping names. Mm. So mm. cool. Mm. <laughs> so I'll ask a quick question. Then. Are you more interested in something cooperative or competitive? Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't really see myself... Well, I mean, who knows where the world will take me, right? I don't see myself talking to people <laughs> I don't know while playing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, my my gut uh, suggestion then would be... <laughs> I love this. <laughs> <laughs> the, it's, it's a party game called Overcooked. Okay. Oh, and I'm going to write yeah. it down. I should have brought yeah, a notebook. Yeah, it's... That's really cute. It's a cartoon style, and I guarantee it will test the limits of your communication in your in your relationship. Uh, awesome. But it's a great time, and it's a cooperative game where you're working, you know, kind of in a, a fast paced timed environment. Cool. So, I like it. I do like. Um, I've played Diner Dash on my phone, so you know. It's similar in some cool. ways. Yeah, it has it has similar elements. So you might find that it's relatable in some way. I used to play Plants vs. Zombies. That was a good one, oh, too. Oh, yeah. That was good before Part 2 came out and everything was microtransactions. That was a bitter, bitter experience. Yeah. <laughs> Bubbles once played Plants vs. Zombies for several, several hours on an airplane. Wow. There was a mini game in WoW based off of Plants vs. Zombies, actually. That's how I got into it. Oh yeah, right. Nice. I remember when they announced that. That was a while ago too. Yeah, it was. For the for the uh, purpose of full disclosure, uh, Ian and I played um, played Overwatch together. I think once or twice. Oh, nice! I haven't tried right. any of those other Blizzard games a hot besides minute. Hearthstone. I think yeah. Do you still play Overwatch, Ian? Uh, not for a long time. I've had the bug lately, but. I've just been very busy with other things in my life. I haven't had too much time to play games in general, and so I've kind of been prioritizing. I very rarely play games at all unless I have friends online to play with. Mm. Okay, so, well, I guess there went... The only reason why we did this podcast today is because I wanted to convince Ian to play Apex Champions with me, but I guess there went that hope. (laughs) Well, I have been playing a a little bit. I've played, like, four games. I might have done a damage in one of the games, too, so, (laughs) you know... I, I think before, I'm ready to challenge Dizzy for the Apex title. Be, before you were immediately punched in the face and, and shot right, whatever team right. ran right at you. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I made it to the top two one time solely by being so bad I couldn't find anyone. That actually works in that game. So that's a shooter like it World does. of like a shooter like World of Warcraft. A, a, a shooter <laughs> kind of like Call of Duty, except uh, it's 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 teams of three, and. Uh, it, it it was it's actually really fun. I we should we should have played that together. That should have been one of my one of my uh, rules for doing this podcast is we're going to play one round of Apex Champions together and see what happens. Oh, perfect! I'll be so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> you can't you you know if you watch it on Twitch at all. If you ever watch it on Twitch, you can watch people playing Apex Champions. Even the people who are extremely good in the majority of games, I'd say they last for about between. 10 seconds and two and a half minutes. Hmm. All right, then. Yeah. It's, so it's... do you guys all play these on your computer? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's, yep. where, that's where the cool kids hang I out. I have n- never owned a, a console. Oh. All right. Yeah, console, console gaming is generally considered the lesser form 
of gaming. I I'm very sad that Alex just turned off her computer because there was some interesting squeaking going on <laughs> that I bet was a toy. There is a toy. I had to tell her to shut up. <laughs> and she's she still won't. squeaking. Yeah. <laughs> is yeah, that this is very sidebar. Yeah. But I'm I'm very disappointed that the mute button is just a button on my computer. I feel like I should have some sort of physical button on my desk or even bind it to a key on my computer so I can I can have a physical cough button, you know? <laughs> radio has taught me that I should have a physical cough button. When were you on the radio, dude? <laughs> Never. Oh, okay. okay. I, was, I thought we had somehow missed out on your radio experience. That would be uh, something we needed to talk about. Um, but speaking of things that we need to talk about, uh, I think it might be time for our art history slash Paris travel review slash uh, Notre Dame uh, segment, which I've been looking forward to. Ian, I think that's, that's going to be all you. First of all, what have, what have you been doing in Paris and how does it tie into your interest in, into art history? And I'm asking this, and I think this is important because apparently our president cannot actually tell the difference between Notre Dame and the Louvre. So I feel like <laughs> it's important that we discuss this now. Yeah, a, a disappointing mistake to be sure. Yep. Uh, so I was in Paris studying abroad. I was only there for 10 days. So I was doing a bit of research in the archives, uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale and uh, some surrounding areas as well. It was not contained just to Paris. I went up to the Normandy coast for a day. I was in mm. some sites south of Paris, but I was mostly doing site-specific research for changing landscape in the, uh, well, mostly in the 19th century uh, in Paris uh, and the surrounding areas. So both literal and metaphorical. So that's everyone's favorite impressionists, Monet and Van Gogh. Uh, but the artist I was focusing on was uh, Gustave Courbet, who was the first artist in history to really look at social issues in art. There was no sugarcoating anything. He showed things exactly as they were. There wasn't heightened emotion. There wasn't, you know, great religious symbolism. It was just the drudgery of life. That's the Sparknotes version of my research. I, I don't want to bore anyone too much by going too deep into stuff. What is it about art history in particular that, that interests you? And when somebody asks you the question that I just asked you, but you expect that they may have very little to no knowledge about art at all how do you explain that interest to somebody i think that having two liberal arts majors in uh degrees that typically don't have that sort of very defined career path you mm -hmm. know certainly nothing wrong with either of the options a liberal arts degree or a stem degree but the stem degree is usually pretty clear you get your major you go work in the field you know, it's very streamlined. So the question I always get is, you know, what are you going to do with that? But my short answer tends to usually be something along the lines of I'm more interested in answering why bother existing than how are we going to exist? So I'd, I'd much rather leave the how to exist to to the STEM majors, the the mathematicians, the scientists, the the people growing my food. Uh, and I'm much more interested in the the why bother being here. So I guess that's the short answer of, of why I'm interested in the major is that I, I really want to to be able to tell someone, you know, this is what's important to me. This is why I get up every morning. So what is it about that major, though? See, here's here's what I find fascinating about art is that a lot of people don't relate to it in the way that you just mentioned. For a lot of people, it's things that they maybe see at a museum. Maybe they have a little bit of it at home. And they hear from people that they should care about this and they judge something as pretty or ugly or childish or whatever it, whatever it may be. 
what is it about art that you think contributes to why we're here and how we're here? I think that people who take that sort of belief tend to understand art as something aesthetic. It was the pretty painting that their grandmother had hanging mm -hmm. in their home because it was a nice little scene that had everything neat and tidy and wrapped up. But, you know, art is so much more than that. It's It doesn't exist in that aesthetic vacuum. And I think it's very easy to look at art in a museum and be like, oh, you know, that's pretty, or oh, that isn't pretty. But all this art has so much wrapped in up into it beyond that. And, you know, that's really where the art history side comes into things. That painting that you think is pretty is, you know, directly an homage to this recent uh, event, maybe. Or, you know, in the case of older paintings, it might be a reflection of 8 million political things going on. And it was banned by the Catholic Church, even though it's just a still life, because the artist, you know, subtly hinted at various corruption and stuff like that. So I think that that's a big part of the reason. Um, you even see that in the, the suprematists uh, were Russian artists and their compositions are absurdly simple. Like, you know, a, a square canvas with a single white square on it. So two different, very slightly different shades of, of white. But the artist wrote, you know, almost a full book on this simple canvas talking about how it symbolized the the reinvention of the sublime into the divine so you know you don't have to to subscribe to that you don't have to look at that and be like oh yes i see the reinvention of the sublime into the divine in that of course but you can't deny that it's not only what meets the eye i think that's an excellent way of describing it and now i'm curious uh, alex and and chelsea do you guys do you have any art feels is that something that that fascinates you or interests you or Is it something that you feel just sort of exists without really impacting your life at all? Um, yeah, I mean, since I was also liberal arts major, I think art was a small part of what we looked at. And I did my um, thesis on, not my master's thesis or anything, but the one for undergrad. Uh, I did that on um, tragedy and how that sort of, melded with some other philosophies so when you talked about the sublime I'm like oh okay this kind of makes sense but I never tied it to Russian art or anything but actually when I kind of separate how I feel about art personally with how I feel about it academically and for me academically would be thinking about it on a way of how it goes with life so when I separate those two I'm really more driven towards other types of art like pop art and art that is a little more political, I think. And especially, I really like this one artist called Cleon Peterson. And he does a lot of Greek type art, but it's very politically driven. And it's kind of more, I don't even know how to say. <laughs> I guess it takes some motifs of some stuff that we see, like the Me Too movement, and it uses those in a lot of ways. And that's the kind of art that I want to look at. Like, I mean, it seems crazy to want to hang one of his paintings in my home because it's kind of violent and reminds you of topics that you don't necessarily want to think about all the time. But for me, that's like something that I want to look at because it piques my interest a lot. So that's that's sort of my take on it right now. It's iconographically really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is really interesting in like how he also uses physical space sometimes too. He puts those types of statues in different areas mm -hmm. and it's not just like prints that he makes it's the 
statues in public places too. So he does all kinds of different things. I think he's been doing less print stuff lately, but I love the iconography as well. It's really interesting. And I mean, I think that that's a perfect example of art is more than, than what meets the eye because I think I'm also looking at his stuff right now to really understand this sort of stuff, at least, you know, on a more intuitive level than aesthetically, you'd also have to know a little bit about the male gaze through history or, yeah. you know, little know a little bit about why this was important or, you know, maybe you have a background with like feminist art. So, I, I mean, I think that's a perfect example of art is more than just aesthetics. I mean, this person is creating art as a political statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's modern. Like, I, I was also a um, women's studies minor, and I did Greek history, too, because I, I was a classics major. So I learned all about the male case throughout history, especially <laughs> women's studies. That really taught me through all of history, not just the Western one. So yeah, it kind of spoke to me on a very like modern level. It's something that I could take all the stuff that I've been learning about in the past and sort of bring it into the future. Yeah, listeners, Cleon Peterson, C-L-E-O-N Peterson. Look it up. That's really interesting. I've never seen him before. Thanks for that, Alex. I'm glad yeah. I introduced people. My friend, um, my friend who's also in German introduced me to him. So I hope he keeps giving me cool new artist i mean i like murakami too don't get me wrong oh I like yeah the of course mainstream you have to. Ones, but yeah. yeah i would say i don't think i have as close of a relationship to art as either of you um obviously my degree was a stem degree but i do totally appreciate the role of art in our world i definitely i'm not one of those people who thinks everything should be science you know what i mean um mm. in like walking through art museums sometimes I feel self-conscious, like I'm not appreciating it the way I should be, or maybe I don't really understand it. And so that like turns me off or makes me want to, you know, go do something else instead. But Mm -hmm. when I do have the opportunity to learn a story behind a piece of work, I really do love that. Um, And then, I mean, if you think of art, not in the kind of museum form, but you know, like literature and music, those are things that I incorporate into my life a lot too. I was going to ask Ian about that earlier because I think what he said is absolutely true. The, right, Every painting has to be understood within its context, not just for what is in front of you. And the context really matters. But I feel that, and I think what you just said, Jesse, is really honest and true for a lot of people. Museums do an exceedingly poor job a lot of the time at communicating that information in a way that makes people feel interested and empowered rather than you know making them feel less than because they're somehow not getting what they are assuming since they're in a museum they're supposed to be getting something important from whatever it is that they're looking at mm-hmm. but that information is not provided in a, in a sensible fashion right i mean i think that's a bit of a consequence of the way we think about art i mean basically since the the renaissance when the idea of the art academy and the idea of the artist as this sort of like mythical genius figure, mm-hmm. not as a, a craftsperson as they were viewed mm-hmm. before then in time. There's been this, you know, the art is this cool kids club where you, it's it's judged and you have to get it to, to be part of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that that belief and that attitude is incredibly pervasive in Western culture. I, I totally get that outsider syndrome you get in a museum. And I, I couldn't agree more with Daniel that a lot of these museums do a terrible job of contextualizing this stuff, which mm-hmm. is why there's been such a push just within the last 20 years 
to have exhibitions in context. So I recently attended an exhibition at the National Gallery that, in addition to the art, was showing a lot of the scientific tools that was driving the philosophy of the time or showing models of the ships that were, you know, docked in the harbor, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you feel this way about art, Ian and Alex, but it kind of reminds me of mine and Daniel's interest in horror films, where I get frustrated. (laughs) I know I'm taking like a weird left (laughs) turn, but it'll come full circle. Um, Sometimes I get frustrated with the need to like label things and categorize them, because then I think some things that are really good don't get appreciated. So I don't know, Daniel, you mentioned a fine arts museum and I've been to modern art museum and I know there's like all different types of, um, you know, forms of art, whether it's realism or whatever. Like I'm, I'm really just like throwing out <laughs> words I've heard before, but the, the way I'm relating to horror movies is they never get appreciated because they're stuck in this genre. And you see it with music a lot too, right? Like so-and-so can't be on top on the chart because they don't fit into the right genre. Do you guys see that with art studies as well? Yeah, I think that plays into a huge also millennial theme, a tie back the theme of the show too is imposter syndrome. I think a lot of us have it mm-hmm. because we make up this whole world that makes it seem impossible to possibly know everything about it. And just because you don't know the, the periods of art and what category it fits into and what the context mm-hmm. around it was, that you can't enjoy it as much. <laughs> I think that's not true and i think we all have to kind of work to get over that eventually i think that's an appropriate comparison yeah it's always that it always seems to be that struggle between the artist basically saying appreciate my art but make sure that you understand what you're what you're looking at and the viewer who's like you know what i just came here to see something and and i i i want you to do the work not me yeah 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 i mean i think a lot of it museums and culture today are putting the emphasis for all the arts not just on visual arts Mm -hmm. but music theater stuff like that on consumption rather than on experience so you go to the louvre and you see the mona lisa Mm -hmm. but you know (laughs) to me at least it seems so much more (laughs) filling to go to the louvre and find a painting and you know maybe you know nothing about the painting i think the great thing about art is you can bring whatever you want to it and sit in front of the painting and be like, wow, this painting really speaks to me on some level. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think we see that in the millennial culture. We kind of talked earlier a bit about like FOMO and stuff where it's like, you know, you make this post of, wow, I had such a great time in New York City. But it's like they're treating New York City like a checklist, you know, visit the Statue of Liberty, go to Times Square, et cetera, et cetera, rather than treating it as an experience. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, like we get when we go to a museum you go see the one that or the piece that is marketed towards you and oftentimes you're not as impressed with it as you are something totally random Mm -hmm. yeah and I think that relates part to what I was trying to drive before where you feel the need to like something because someone told you you should like it and I think that adds to that imposter syndrome that you named Alex I feel just art in general it's it's a, like a personal relationship, but it's cool that you're getting this history behind it too. But then you have to separate the, okay, do I like this because it's the Mona Lisa and everyone says I should like it? Or mm-hmm. am I actually having a connection to it? But did you go see the Mona Lisa this time, Ian? Uh, you know, I did, but I, I think that painting, the fact that that painting is as popular as it is, is such a brilliant piece of marketing. The painting is 
artistically unimportant. It's historically unimportant. I mean, the marketing by by the Louvre to make that to give it this sort of aura is just brilliant, quite frankly. But I mean, the artist was not entirely unimportant, I'd say. No, certainly not. But uh, in terms of the art he created, I mean, mm. contemporary writers, Vasari wrote extensively about Leonardo. Leonardo himself wrote about the Mona Lisa. And both of them say, eh, it's an average portrait, you know? it's mm. There's nothing special about it. I mean, Vasari chronicled meticulously the artist's uh, living in his contemporary time. And he basically devoted one line to it. He was like, and then Leonardo created a portrait for this person. That's it. That's all he says about it. That's actually really interesting. So there you go. The Mona Lisa discredited. Bam! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if any of you have been to Yellowstone, but we went a couple years ago and took a tour. And at Old Faithful, we learned it's kind of the same thing as the Mona, as you just described the Mona Lisa, where it's not the tallest geyser. It's not the most frequent geyser. Like, there's nothing special about it, but it is this, like, marketing thing. It's just the one that is happens to be next to a road that people thought was kind of tall. <laughs> yeah, and funnily enough, that kind of ties back into art, too, because a huge part of the popularity of Old Faithful was a series of photographs by a photographer that I'm afraid I forget the name of, but he was contracted by the U.S. government to go out there and take photographs of Old Faithful, and they were some of the most mass-produced and widely distributed photographs in, like, late 18th, early 20th, or sorry, late 19th, rather, early 20th century America. Wow. That's really interesting. So, uh, Chelsea, quickly, we have to do the horror thing. Does anybody else here uh, enjoy horror movies? A quick show of hands? Uh, I can't say I do. (laughs) I I make an effort to avoid them. So, you know, having monopolized the conversation about art for the last few minutes, I feel it's apropos that I sit this one out. Hi, Chelsea. It's just you and I now. Uh, we'll make so, it quick. I don't want to bore everybody. Oh, no, please. I Trust me, there are other frustrated horror fans out there who have not gotten their horror podcast that I've in, uh, now promised them for literally months. I say we're going to do horror, and it hasn't happened yet. There will be one. But well, you can you can invite yet. me back for that one. Hopefully, I can hold my I own. I will. I will. For you, when you watch horror movies, what for you is a good horror movie? Would you say? Ooh, I like a fresh concept, so something that isn't hasn't been done multiple times the same way. Um, I obviously like getting scared. That's a big part of it. Yeah, I guess those are probably the two main things. Can you talk a little bit? about that getting scared because that's that's what i don't understand is is that a positive emotion (laughs) honestly i don't know what it says about my personality that that i like it (laughs) terrible Uh, (laughs) things chelsea you're a terrible person sorry (laughs) without having done much study on it i do think there's an aspect of it where it's another form of escape for people where things are so bad in the thing that they're watching and you get comfort in knowing that that's not happening to you um (laughs) But the thrill itself and just, like, jumping and, like, yelling and stuff, I I find it kind of fun, especially knowing that, like, at the end of this, I'm still in my house and, like, I'm going to have a beer and go to bed. Like, I'm not – it's in, like, a controlled environment in your own home. I don't know. I just – I've always found it, like, entertaining and fun, but I can see why some people don't like that (laughs) feeling. (laughs) So since we've got a classics major here, I'll ask. I've heard horror movies compared to classic Greek like tragedies and dramas in the sense that like the catharsis you get when you you finish it do you do you think that's fair or do you think that's not really what you you're saying oh wow that's a good question about the catharsis (laughs) i'm not not to sound stupid i'm not totally sure i understand your question can you rephrase it yeah um it's kind of like 
you're all wrapped up in it and then when it's over you you kind of get this release which does kind of sound like what you were saying um where it's kind of along those lines of like oh well it's not happening to me I i don't have to worry about it i can have my beer and go to bed probably is similar in that release thing too i also find it fascinating just to kind of see it's kind of fucked up just to kind of see like the horror that other human minds can come up with I, that sounds so dark <laughs> but i don't know if daniel you relate to that like oh i i so relate yeah. but i'm gonna let alex i'm gonna let alex quickly answer that that uh, uh ian's question if she if she uh, has an answer for that uh yeah because i i totally get that uh concept too because that was kind of what my thesis was also about but for some reason i never really felt that with horror myself because I just, the only horror that I ever really appreciated because I had to write about it was like Nosferatu and Saskatchewan. Oh, God bless Dr. you. Caligari. Oh, nice. So oh, like, beautiful. Those are my, those are my favorite horror movies, I think, which is a total cop out because they're just like no. the intelligentsia ones. Alex, never let anybody in the world tell you that Nosferatu and Das Kabinett des Dr. Caligari is a cop-out when it comes to horror movies. That's like the basis. Nosferatu, the one in, from 1922, probably yeah. still one of my favorite mm-hmm. movies ever made about a vampire and, and had a huge effect of, on me when I first saw it. So no, absolutely no apologies necessary. <laughs> okay, that's good. Again, don't have imposter syndrome about art. <laughs> you liked it. You can like. So, which ones are for you the most fun horror movies? If you had to name a few, Chelsea, which ones kind of stuck with you? I loved Twenty Eight Days Later. Mm. Um, that was, but there's also like different genres of horror movies, right? So there's like your zombie sure. movies and your slasher movies and your paranormal movies. And I always tell people it always has to do with what scares you. I find that. Yes. What that makes your favorite horror movie. So for me, it's like the paranormal, like demons, like that stuff is the like lingering fear for me. So those movies always have an impact. Like it's probably not even a good style movie, but like when Paranormal Activity came out, that was one that like kept me up at night. (laughs) But for some people that isn't scary at all. So it totally depends on what you like. Um, Found footage, huh? Yeah. When I was little, the ring really scared me. Um, so good. The original or the, the American one? The American one. Um, mm. I was too young to have known that it was a spinoff at the time. Um, or a remake. Semi recently, I really I loved Cabin in the Woods, and a lot of people hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but that's when super you, meta. That movie is super. meta. I know, and I thought it was really cool how it played on all the tropes. And then if you. I watched like the behind the scenes on it and learned that they didn't use any CGI. And I thought that was so impressive. Mm-hmm. All practical effects. Yeah. Very cool. Um, the, I think some that scared me recently were the conjuring. That one definitely made me jump a lot. Um, really good. Well, and you had feelings about us. I did. I really liked us and I want, but I need to see it again. Yeah. It's also sometimes hard to get to the movies. So a lot of times we wait and watch them at home, but us was one that I really wanted to see on the big screen. Um, especially because I wanted Jordan Peele to get my money in this one case. Mm-hmm. So I made sure to see that. But that one was really cool. It was something I hadn't seen done before. I liked the concept. And I am I hate spoilers, so I'm trying not to go into too many details. But mm-hmm. um, I don't mind gore either. So like I liked the slashery aspects of it. 
I thought the acting was so good. And then I think there's a bunch of hidden Easter eggs in it, which is why I want to see it a couple more times. Mm-hmm. Yep, there's a lot of shots. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, Ian, neither one of you has seen us. No, I haven't. Believe it or not, I actually have. Ah, and what did you think? I think I'm still processing. I, I just saw it a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And so I'm still kind of working through. I mean, I think I enjoyed Get Out more. That's my, my original gut mm-hmm. instinct. But... Yeah, I don't, it's strange. I, I just don't know how I feel about it yet. I've seen us twice now, and in the beginning, I felt exactly like you do, Ian. And I'm finding now, though, that I find myself thinking about it more than I did about Get Out. Interesting. Okay, so I'll, I'll get back to you in a couple of days and, and see how I'm feeling. <laughs> I now. mean, when we left the theater, we were kind of just like, whoa. And I was like, I feel like I need to read a couple articles about that, which is a weird way to <laughs> view a movie. So I definitely understand where you're coming from, but... Like Daniel said, it's been on my mind a lot since I saw it. Um, Daniel, did you see Hereditary? Heredity? Yeah. Hell hell yeah. That was one that stuck with me, if not just for the imagery. That was mm-hmm. disturbing. But their take on like grief as a, as a horror was, I thought, really interesting. I didn't even think the payoff in Hereditary was that great. Like the, the la- like they said, the last seven minutes, I was like, okay, that wasn't even my favorite part of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. But it was kind of the in-between stuff, just like watching this family torn apart by that tragedy. I was like, ooh, this is, this is different than the normal, <laughs> the normal scary movie. Yeah, it was, it was painful. But I, we would recommend that neither Alex nor Ian see that one. Because <laughs> the, the last seven minutes will, will haunt you. I, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's I don't handle that well. So I, I will take your advice. Thank you for the, for the PSA on that uh, one. Yeah, Hereditary, those last seven minutes. It's similar to the last, well, actually worse than the last seven minutes of of which, which. Oh, that movie sucked, Daniel. <laughs> here I am, art shaming you after I just, we just talked about uh, Here that I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed Witch, uh, except for the last seven minutes, but I thought the, the buildup was nice. Um, and not a movie, but The Haunting of Hill House, I thought was so good. I loved that. Uh, I, I, I forced your mother to watch that, and, and she took a chance, and she did. <laughs> I don't know. We might have to share credit in getting her to do that. Maybe she's telling us both different stories. <laughs> so that one, by the way, Alex and Ian, we can warmly recommend. Okay. Okay. I don't know about watching me. I'm, I'm like, scarred from um, the one horror movie I ever saw. So I think it was uh, The Strangers. Ooh, yeah, oh. I can see that. That's a scary one. Yeah, I like I had a cast party with uh, my theater group one night and they were like, we're going to go to the arcade. And then it turned into like, we're going to go see The Strangers. And then ever since then, I can't oh. touch <laughs> theater horror movies. I, I, I guess you I guess you found your your uh, genre that disturbs you, Home Invasion. Yeah, because yeah. that one. I find things that I, well, I say this as I say paranormal scares me, but the things that seem realistic are the scariest things. Oh, yeah. So the home invasion, I definitely rings true for me, too. Before our other two guests have nightmares from just listening to us talk <laughs> excitedly <laughs> about scary stuff. For now, we're going to thank them each individually, and I'm going to give you their Twitter again, as I usually do. You now, of course, know that you should follow all three of them. That is no longer a mystery to you. So you're going to follow Chelsea at Chelsea underscore Toto on Twitter. 
you're going to follow Alex at Talbert Alex. And if you can figure out her other one, then she might or might not add you depending on how she feels that day. <laughs> and right. That's, does that sound right, Alex? Yep. True. And you're going to follow Ian at Teng Warren. That's T-E-N-G-W-A-R-I-N. Guys, thank you so much for all your time and for doing this. Thanks yeah, so much thank for you. Having us. Thank you. Thank you.